hello and, and welcome to this uh, special session today uh, with Dan Kaladine from Dentsu, who's uh, the head of Media Future. Uh, we're very futures. We're very happy to have you with us, uh, Dan, uh, today. We were supposed to have you first in Amsterdam uh, in September, then in Amsterdam in uh, December, and sadly, we had to move this online, wanted to make sure that the content that you're sharing with us today um, is given enough uh, space and that we're doing you some justice by giving you a special format. So uh, allow us today to, to dedicate this uh, session uh, to the future report that you're publishing every year. And we will focus now, obviously, on the report for 2022. Um, we're very lucky at ECTA to have a bespoke version that you've done for us and that is focusing on broadcasters' uh, needs and the insights that we thought might interest our TV and our radio members. Um, so I'll, I'll let you present, um, go through the presentation that you've prepared for us. And Thierry and I will come in with a few questions. Um, uh, to, to throughout the presentation. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Me. Um, yeah. so I'm very sorry to have missed to, to have, that, that we didn't get to do a physical event, but um, I'm very, very happy to be able to present to your members um, and to talk to you about the trends that we've produced. And what, as you say, what I've done is I've produced a bespoke version for you. Um, and I'm going to be talking through these for the next few minutes. And then uh, I think we're also going to be discussing them and um, you know, answering some questions on them. So, um, Densu is a media agency, uh, we're a communications agency. We have a number of brands, including Cara, iProspect, Densu X. Um, every year, we produce a trend report really to, to look at the things that we think are important in that year and to allow it to um, advise clients on what we should be doing to future proofs ourselves. Um, so, we're obviously in a very strange time at the moment. Um, we're, we're sort of going through a period of recovery from last year's pandemic. Uh, you know, vaccines make things easier, variants hinder things again. Um, what we have seen over the last 20 months or so is an enormous amount of innovation from both brands, broadcasters, advertisers, where we're really trying to work out the new rules for the new world. And what we're gonna do now is to look at four trends which are impacting the marketing and broadcasting landscape and the imp implications for your members. So we have four trends here. I'm gonna jump straight into them. Um, the first trend we're calling omni-channel everything. So I think many of us, many of us on this call will know um, about omni-channel retail where, for example, I might buy something on my laptop, then go into a store to collect it, or I might visit a store do some research, then come home and buy it on my laptop and get it delivered to me and all sorts of variations of that. And what it's really about is making things as easy and as flexible as possible from the customer's point of view, allowing them to do things the way that they want to. And we're starting to see this within the world of media and the world of entertainment. So for example, we see film companies like Disney releasing their movies in the cinema but also online at exactly the same point. Um, this has an implication for the revenue they get from these, uh, from these films. I think if it was, you know, if, if films like Cruella were released solely in the cinemas in, in more normal times, the revenues would be much greater, but they can still make significant revenues by doing this. Um, we also see this happening with Netflix. So Netflix is, you know, started off as an online only experience. They've now started to produce physical 
experiences for some of the shows that they produce. So I'm thinking specifically of um, two shows that they have in the works, uh, sorry, two live events they have in the works for shows so far. One is the Queen's Ball, a Bridgerton experience, which is a ticketed event happening, I think, on both sides of the Atlantic in early 2022. But also they have been running, I think, in a few cities around the world, what they call a money heist experience, where effectively you're going into a bar for a piece of live interactive theatre that you're, you're paying tickets for. So if you're a fan of these shows, you can actually take your love of these shows further by, by doing things in a, you know, in a different way to sitting at home watching them on your screens. So again, it's sort of making, it's extending the IP really into making it something um, which the audience can enjoy in different sorts of ways. And what we've also seen with Netflix is they've now started to produce video games based on some of their properties, again, with things like Stranger Things. Um, what they're doing with that is um, there are games that you can play within the mobile app. And with this, what they're trying to do is to appeal to younger audiences who are very into playing mobile-based video games. Um, but as another example of this, I mean, it's not purely uh, it's not purely things that broadcasters are doing. We're also seeing this with other sorts of entertainment where, you know, we'll see this with conferences. I mean, in fact, this conference is, um, is largely virtual, but I think there may be some physical elements for some people. Um, but also with things like festivals, with things like Fashion Week, what we're seeing is, you know, a, a physical event and also a digital event, partly extending the IP, but essentially making things a lot more flexible for people. And with the Edinburgh Festival, which is an arts festival that takes place in Scotland every year, what they did was they ha had a live festival this year, but in a very reduced form. But they also created a platform where people could watch shows on demand um, as part of the festival. And the festival only takes place in August. And so as soon as August was over, the platform disappeared as well. You weren't able to watch any of these shows. So it was trying to think about how you could do a show in a digital way. But essentially, it's, it's, it's the same thing. In an increasingly omnichannel world, um, we need to develop content and develop ways of accessing content that suit audiences at different times based on their age, maybe their outlook, um, their ability to travel, those sorts of things. I think it's very likely that real world versions, including things like cinema screenings, will appeal more to young people. Um, but I think this is something that we need to test. We shouldn't just make these assumptions. Uh, but then also, I think merchandise is part of the on-channel experience. But I think we need to have one eye on sustainability and supply chain. So really not flooding the world with you know, cheap T-shirts, cheap merch that will fall apart after two washes or something. Thank you very much, uh, Dan, for this uh, presentation for the, um, the first topic. Um, I'm surprised by your insight about the young audience preferring live experiences. Uh, what does that mean for broadcasters and radio stations? Do you mean, uh, for example, live concerts or events? I think so, yeah. I think, I think if you look at things like um, the age breakdown of people who go to the cinema, I think they always skew towards the young age group. They're, they're more willing to go out in the evening. They're more willing to travel to, to these sorts of things. Obviously, there are you know, there are exceptions to this with things like classical concerts. But I think by and large, if you put on a live event, then you're going to get a younger sort of audience going to it. And that could be a really interesting way 
to expect to extend an IP of a program to attract younger people. And I think also, you know, with Netflix getting into gaming, what they're what they're trying to do is to make sure that they're still relevant to young people whose entertainment uh, diet may be made up of you know, some live concerts, some music that they listen to, some TV that they watch, but also some games that they play. Okay, thank you very much. Very clear. Um, I give you the floor back for the second trend then. Thank you, uh, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, so my second trend is called New Ways to Buy. And in the previous one, I was talking about omnichannel retail. With this, what we're talking about is new technologies making it easier for people to buy specifically through their screens. So um, there's been a there's been a been a, been a trend for the last few years, particularly in Asia, for this thing that people are now starting to call shop attainment, where essentially it's like TV shopping channels, but it's within an app on your phone. So there are lots of examples of this um, in China, particularly. And when you look at things like the, the Singles Day Festival that Alibaba holds every year, um, increasingly large amounts are being spent through people watching live videos and then sort of um, being inspired through the live demonstration to buy the product. We're starting to see this move into the West, both in terms of with apps, so um, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, and others are all experimenting with this sort of technology. And they're all hoping, stroke betting, that um, this technology is going to become very popular, certainly with some, some of the audiences that they address. But what's really interesting is that we're also starting to see this as you know a sort of a major TV format. So uh, on the USA network in the state, which is part of NBC Universal. They've recently been running a show called America's Big Deal. And this is a little bit like, uh, like a sort of talent show, something like um, American Idol or something like that, or America's Adventure. Except in this iteration of it, what's happening is that an inventor will come on, he will pitch his product, but then while the program is on air, people are able to buy the product. And the winner of the show is the one who, who sells the most product while the show is on air. So I think that's really interesting how this is becoming uh, how this is becoming a more mainstream thing. We're also seeing um, shopping becoming much more easily through the TV screen as a result of connected TV. So I think an awful lot of YouTube video, YouTube viewing, maybe something like 30%, is now actually through connected TV. It's almost like um, the streaming platform that nobody really talks about because we just associate YouTube with people watching on laptops with people watching on phones. But actually, a lot of the viewing now does seem to be happening through connected TV. And in the States, what they've done is they've introduced um, a button in addition to the skip ad button that you control with your TV remote. They've also got a button saying send to my phone. So if you're watching an advert for something which looks very engaging, you can send it to your phone. Um, and in, so instead of you know doing a search on your phone while the advert is playing, You can just really conveniently have the information there and it makes it much more shoppable as well. We're also seeing um, integration with TV manufacturers. So in the UK, ITV partnered with LG to make Love Island shoppable in its, um, in its broadcast this year, where if, uh, if products were identified on screen, so you know, potentially things like cosmetics, um, then at the end of the program, people were given the opportunity to click through to actually see the products 
within the TV ecosystem and actually go on to buy them. And what we're also seeing, and this is where it gets a little bit science fiction-y, is um, YouTube experimenting with a new technology called product detection. And so what they're able to do is they're able to actually, um, within a video, they're able to identify if there are products within it based on what they know products look like, logos and that sort of thing. And it's the same sort of AI technology as you see identifying products within photos or for things like moderation, where you're trying to filter bad videos out of the ecosystem. So as far as I know, this is still being tested, but you can imagine um, if this were to work, then it would be, it would have enormous implications for how people were able to shop from the videos that they've been watching, but also for things like um, SVOD platforms where you don't have interruptive advertising, but instead you could have deals based on things like product placement where people buy things at the end of the show by tapping a button on their TV remote. So the implications I have for this one, I think it's really, I think it's really essential for broadcasters um, to be embracing these new opportunities, to be experimenting in the way that uh, YouTube is experimenting, ITV is experimenting, and sort of think about how the technology can make the advertising and the content within the TV um, much more in get well, sorry, much more easy to buy through a, through a shorter number of steps. Um, but also sort of think about, well, in the same way that I was talking with the first trend about extending the IP, is there a way that you can extend the IP of programming that you're running into allowing people to buy things through their screen? And if so, what sort of IP is going to work best? What sort of audiences is this going to work better for? And what I've shown today has been relatively future facing, but I think we should always assume that the technology is going to get better. So where we're talking about sending something to your phone, at some point, we won't need to send to your phone anymore. It will be within the TV ecosystem. Thanks, Dan. So uh, maybe an immediate question I have is when you're talking about the, the potential of audiences, I mean, obviously, each media group will analyze that for their reality, because everybody has a different reality. Um, but from a societal marketing perspective, can you say if certain audiences have greater potential than, than others? I mean, from an extra perspective, we do get a lot of uh, questions about, for example, the gray audiences, the plus 60 audiences that have a bigger purchasing power, or for example, men who play a bigger role now within um, the purchasing decision within a household, whereas marketers tend to be very focused, you know, on, on young people and on the sexiness of the young audiences, but we have a bit less of a purchasing power, right? So is there an audience that we should tap into anyway that has more potential? I, I think the greatest potential is among the early adopters. And I think with that, you can see what sort of audience groups are the ones who are the first to buy new technologies like connected TVs. I mean, they're not particularly new anymore, but the ones more likely to have them in their households because you've got to have this technology to, to be enabled to buy in these sorts of ways anyway. I know that um, older audiences more wealthy quite often have more disposable income than the younger ones. But I think, it's, I think there's probably a sort of sweet spot of, you know, late 20s to late 30s where people will both have the technology because they'll be interested in, in updating or buying technology for the first time. Um, but also they have the buying power to be interested in the things that your advertisers 
might be interested in selling. Mm, and it's the openness to try new stuff also, maybe. Exactly. Right? The desire to just yeah. early adopt, yeah, try it, try and, yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Thank you. I'll let you go on with the next trend then. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so the third trend I wanted to talk about was all about screen-free media. So what I mean when I'm talking about screen-free media, and I, I suppose actually the picture of the smart speaker here is quite, um, he's, he's possibly distracting. But the point we're making is, um, you know, we talk an awful lot about the, the immersiveness of the screen, how people's eyes are just naturally drawn to screens. Um, but actually, you don't need a screen. You don't need a screen to produce really, really immersive content. Um, and there are an awful lot of things happening around screen-free media or uh, otherwise, if you want to call it audio. Um, so, for example, there's a lot around the new technology allowing you to you know, potentially interact with advertising through speaking. I know that Spotify and others are experimenting with this sort of technology. But also what we're seeing is brands get into the idea of um, creating what we call sonic branding. So a little sort of short jingle or sting of music that can be used both at the end of their advertising, but also potentially as part of the process of using the product. And so um, I think we're going to see more people do that. And it's really just the acknowledgement that you're not, you know, you don't necessarily have to be looking at something. It doesn't have to be your eyes which consume the media, your ears are potentially just as important for you. Um, what we've seen over the last 18, 20 months or so is an enormous interest in consuming audio content, particularly through digital and particularly with people listening or interacting on their phones. Um, so, you know, uh, we've seen some data from the IAB Europe that says that uh, says that digital audio was the second fastest growing ad format over the last year or so. Um, what we've also seen is technology giants like Spotify moving really uh, decisively into things like podcasting. And now they've also started to move into, or at least investigate, moving into audiobooks as well. We've also seen innovation around the concept of live audio. Uh, so I think if I'd been doing this presentation um, about six months ago or so, I would have had much more in it about the apps like Clubhouse, where it's almost like a, like a live audio forum where people all congregate to talk about something, whether it be a football match they've been watching or, um, you know, the end of a TV show or something where people will just sort of congregate online to talk about things. So there's been a lot of interest in different sorts of formats within audio. But what we're also seeing is um, audio turning, and particularly digital audio, turning into a really engaging advertising medium. So I was talking about, um, you know, the IAB Europe figures, but also what we've seen is, um, you know, as I say, the, the, the opportunity to potentially interact with the advertising, which has never really been possible with audio before. We're also seeing some really in interesting innovations around audio being used as a sort of complementary medium to physical products like you buy. So a story I read a couple of weeks ago said that the, um, the meal kit provider uh, Blue Apron has done a deal with Amazon Alexa in the States where when you 
get a subscription to their meals, they also give you access to audio channels where you don't need to follow written down instructions. What you can do is, you know, it will just give you the instructions for how to cook it um, for you to actually listen to. I, I know in this picture, by the way, um, it does show a screen, but effectively this would work without the screen as well. And we're also seeing, you know, sort of greater interest in um, in-car audio, in new digital engaging format. And so in terms of implications for this one, I think it's a really important thing to remember that even though we do talk a lot about screens, even though, you know, the world seems to be obsessed with, um, with, you know, with, with, with shows and with movies and things like that, you really don't need a screen to make content engaging. When you're listening to something, it can be just as engaging, it can be just as immersive, if it's only your ears which are being stimulated by the content. Um, given that many people now listen through to devices like phones, and like smart speakers, I think there's greater opportunity for things like personalization, for measurement and for targeting. And I think also there's a great deal of opportunity for interaction within the content. So, for example, the ad formats that allow people to respond to advertising, including purchasing, and also potentially things like a sort of choose your own, own adventure where people are asked to guide the story to making choices as the story persists. Thank you very much, Dan. Uh, as you just said, audio is becoming a significant digital advertising medium. Uh, is this trend of voice technology and uh, free screen media leading to significant increasing demand uh, of your clients for audio? Yes, I think more people are waking up to the opportunity of audio. I think, um, I think particularly with digital audio, particularly where you can say, you know, in the same way that with, with video, when it's consumed digitally, you can sort of, you know, you can get quite a lot of data on the people watching. In this case, you can get quite a lot of data on the listening as well. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think audio is definitely um, a channel which has a lot of unique selling points and, um, you know, an awful lot going for it. And as I say, it's just incredibly immersive. If you're listening to something often occupying a lot of your time but then at the same time it's one of the only media that you can consume when you're doing something else like you're um, you know like you're going for a walk or you're taking part in sport or you're taking or you're doing some cooking or you know things like that so i think it's, it's definitely a medium that has a really strong future I believe it's so. So thank you very much, uh, Dan. I let you go on for the last trend. So thank you. Thank you. So the last trend I wanted to talk to you all about today was what we're calling the decade of paid. So about 10 years ago, an author called Chris Anderson wrote a book called Free. And his hypothesis was that in the future, everything would be free. In the future, there would be a free version of everything almost to tempt you to experience it. And then you would sort of be guided into, you know, maybe uh, maybe sort of paying for some elements of the service. Um, what we're actually seeing and why we call this the decade of paid is, you know, it actually moving the other way in that you now have services like, uh, like Netflix again and like Disney Plus and the other streamers where you really don't get anything unless you actually pay for it. And increasingly, we're seeing um, newspapers put up paywalls. So obviously, this shows New York Times here. Um, they have they now have something like eight and a half million paying subscribers. And if you don't pay, 
I think we all know uh, to our cost, if we just click through on links from newsletters and things like that, um, you really don't get much of a free ride with the New York Times because they want you to pay for their journalism. And they've effectively shifted to a very subscription-based model from a very ad-funded model. But even with companies that don't actually create their own content, so Twitter is a user-generated content platform, but they've also introduced a paid model where you can pay for additional, um, additional services, additional ways of using the app, like things like scheduling tweets and stuff like that. So I think we're moving into this world where more and more of what we consume, particularly online, is now actually paid for. Um, you know, the reason for this is more people are blocking advertising, but also um, Apple, through the release of iOS 15, is making it much harder for brands to actually track who is um, who is being exposed to the advertising on different sorts of channels, and it's actually affecting a lot of uh, a lot of publishers and a lot of technology companies' revenues. In fact. Um, both Facebook and Spot and uh, and Snapchat have said in their most recent um, earnings reports that you know they've they've been impacted by iOS 15. And in fact, Snapchat um, saw their saw their um, share price drop by 25% in one day, day of their results because they they revealed that they had been very affected and they they expected to be um, to be you know to continue to be affected as they tried to develop new ways of working with their advertisers. But then also I think the other aspect of um, why people are paying for things more is that it's just getting much easier to pay for things. So if you have payments set up on your smartphone now, it's much more easy to subscribe to things than it used to be. And I think people are just getting used to just adding a few subscriptions without really thinking about it. Um, so what I think is likely to happen in the future is I think there will be more pressure on publishers, on advertisers, on broadcasters, uh, because people are not seeing as much advertising. And what they're going to do is to try to find new models. Um, I mean, you know, sometimes these will be successful, sometimes they'll be less successful. Quibi from earlier this year is an example of a, in fact, it was, I think Quibi was last year, actually, sorry. Uh, but Quibi is an example where, you know, it's very hard to get it right to get people to actually pay for content. So, you know, I, I think it is going to be um, it is going to be a challenge for a lot of people within the industry. But then I also think, um, you know, speaking speaking individually, I subscribe to a number of things. I think people are going to face subscription fatigue. Um, you know, particularly if the economy gets worse with new outbreaks, uh, new, new spreads of, of the pandemic and things like that. Um, and I think also what we're likely to see is quite a lot of people sort of sharing passwords where, um, you know, somebody might subscribe to something and then give other people access unofficially. And I think we're likely to see people cracking down on that. And I also think we're likely to see sort of bundles emerging from different publishers where if you buy such and such a bundle, then you get this, but then you also get this included. And I think we're starting to see this, um, particularly through things like telecom companies, where if you take out a contract, you also get something, you know, some of the services thrown in. So in terms of implications for this one, I think the biggest implication is as we move to, you know, as we move from a world to, to a world where people are increasingly paying for content, I think there's going to be increasingly you know, increasing challenges with finding really high quality ad inventory. 
to put it to put it bluntly, every hour somebody spends watching Disney Plus, they're not watching advertising or other TV and video services. Um, I think it's going to be really important to develop things like sponsorships and partnerships, product placement, and those sorts of things to actually uh, to integrate brands into content in a way that isn't blockable and is harder to avoid through, through simply changing channel and things like that as well. But I also think that broadcasters are actively working to develop new business models so that they're not so reliant on advertising. So they can also generate revenue from things like the, you know, the sort of sales I was talking about earlier, but also potentially extending their IP into other areas. Thank you very much. Um, thinking of, of what you mentioned here, do you think there's um, a fatigue, you mentioned a certain fatigue in terms of subscriptions. Do we have a sort of threshold in, uh, or do you know, or have, do you have insights on the number of ABO of, um, of uh, services that a subscriber can subscribe to before thinking, okay, that's too much. Is it, is it a price question? Is it a complementarity of the offer? Are the younger, you know, more inclined to have three, four, five services while a certain other target group would focus on having more one or two? I, I, so, so I think there's, I think, you know, research is ongoing in this sort of area. I think it's a comparatively new area. Everything I've seen seems to suggest that people are happy with multiple subscriptions so far. I think there were predictions a few years ago that, you know, people wouldn't want more than one or two um, pay SVOD subscriptions. Um, mm -hmm. What we've seen is actually people, you know, people cancelling more things, You know, before they cancel those services or people cutting back on, on things like night out before they cut back on those sorts of services. So it's relatively, I think people, um, if the content is good, if the services are good, then people are relatively resistant to cancelling. I think this is, this is one example why Squid Game was so important for Netflix, really, because I think it really differentiated Netflix. I think it sort of said, if this is the sort of content you watch, then we have to be your number one your number one service. We have to be the service that you will keep when you cancel all of the other ones. And so I, th I think um, I think it's increasingly important to have the sort of unusual, the sort of, uh, you know, unique and original content that people will go to that will really set your brand out as this is the place to go to for this sort of content and we can't live yeah. this sort of content. Yeah, it's the distinctive asset each of them has, right? So if you're if you're exactly. special enough, people will keep you. Um, maybe that's where broadcasters are particularly well placed because they're usually really good with national content. I mean, in their own language and knowing the identity of their own country uh, that international players know a bit less, I guess. So maybe exactly. No, it's it's about the strength of the brand as well. So with a national broadcaster, you probably have a daily relationship with mm. the broadcaster because you turn it on to watch the news or you have your, your favorite shows that are on every week or something. Whereas with, you know, with some of the streamers, it's quite easy to forget some of them exist if you just don't, you know, if you, if you sort of forget to tap on the button, if you forget to check out what's on there, um, you know, what, what's new this week and stuff. So yeah. I do that the national broadcasters are potentially in a very strong because They have strong brands. They have strong relationships with their audiences. They know who their audiences are and their audience feel strong. Super. That's good to hear. I like that message to close, actually. Uh, thank you so much, Dan, for, you know, having taken us through that presentation, um, which is... Uh, 
the report is much richer than that. So you, you, we've taken four points out now for trends for you, dear ECTA members. Uh, please know you can download the full report uh, on Lensu's website, on Kara's website. Uh, we will also put it available for members, of course. Um, so hopefully, Dan will see you in Rio next year. Uh, why not for the 2023 report? <laughs> Um, so hopefully ask you questions in real, discuss them over coffee, uh, lunch, dinner. Um, and so, yeah, in the meantime, we wish you a happy Christmas period. Uh, all the best also to our ECTA members uh, from around the world uh, and people who are watching this video. And uh, may this uh, end of the year period be, be, be sweet and, and joyful and not full of bad COVID news. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.